One of my purposes in this study of Romans chapter 11 has been to disabuse us of the notion that Israel, whether we conceive of Israel as an ethnic people or nation or whether it's conceived of as the geopolitical state, stands at present in a special relationship to God in any saving or covenantal sense. The idea that Israel, as it presently stands, okay, that is, as a people almost entirely unbelieving. I gave you a statistic a couple of weeks ago which suggested that somewhere in the neighborhood of less than 2% of the world's Jewish population believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So Israel, as it presently stands, as a people almost entirely unbelieving, continuing to reject Jesus as the Messiah and the gospel as God's saving plan, the idea that they remain in a covenantal relationship with God and continue to enjoy the covenantal promises and blessings from God is, I think, a perversion of biblical truth. And it's rooted, I believe, in a confusion of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant that God made with the ethnic nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and it promised blessings. It promised land, prosperity, peace, the presence of God in exchange for faithful obedience to the covenant conditions laid out, set forth for Israel in the law. But it also threatened curses like exile, war, famine, the absence of God for faithless disobedience to the covenant. In other words, the Mosaic covenant said to Israel, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Now, according to the prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but a number of the others, as well as the New Testament authors, and even Jesus himself, that Mosaic covenant was fulfilled and finished in Christ Jesus. That's the main point of Hebrews chapters 8 to 10. That's the main point of Jesus at the last Passover taking the cup and saying, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. The Mosaic covenant, also known as the old covenant, no longer exists. And its promises no longer pertain to Israel or to anyone else. The Abrahamic covenant, which came earlier, is different. It is an unconditional and everlasting covenant, and it is not confined to any one ethnic group. Paul himself distinguishes these two covenants in Galatians 3 when he contrasts the Mosaic covenant, which he calls the law, with the Abrahamic covenant, which he calls the promise. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, that is Christ. This is what I mean, the law. Now he's talking about the Mosaic covenant. 
The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. The Abrahamic covenant. So as to make the promise void. The Mosaic covenant does not change or cancel out the Abrahamic covenant. For if the inheritance promised to Abraham and his descendants comes by the law, it it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And then a few verses later he says, Therefore there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, that is the one true seed of Abraham, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. That's Paul in Galatians. And it accords perfectly with what Paul has written here in Romans, particularly in chapters 4 and 9 through 11. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of grace made with Abraham and with his spiritual offspring, namely Christ and all who are united to Christ by faith. And these offspring, Paul specifically says, are not determined by physical descent, but rather by God's own purpose of election through faith in Christ as our justifying righteousness. That's essentially the main point of Romans 9 and 10. This means that an unbelieving Jewish person, an unbelieving Israelite today has no covenantal relationship with God. While a believing Gentile and a believing Jewish person share precisely the same covenantal relationship to God, namely the promise of Abraham, the promise of justification before God and an everlasting inheritance in the presence of God. Stated another way, There is nothing that distinguishes a believing Jew from a believing Gentile in terms of their share in the Abrahamic covenant of grace. There is no further blessing that Jewish Christians enjoy that Gentile Christians do not. There is, in fact, only one factor that distinguishes an unbelieving Jew from an unbelieving Gentile, and it is not divine right to the land of Canaan, which we'll get to in a few moments. The only thing that distinguishes an unbelieving Jew from an unbelieving Gentile today is a promise of future conversion for the Jewish people who are alive at the second coming of Christ. Now, I review this covenantal background because this is the only theological backdrop against which Romans 11, and in particular verses 25 to 32, are going to make sense. Romans 11 is hard. Romans 9 to 11 is hard. And in order to understand it, we've got to understand Abraham, Moses, and the relationship between the two. So let me try and state this clearly and unambiguously at the beginning, and then I'm going to flesh this out as this message proceeds. This is written at the top of your bulletins, which you were handed this morning. God has no future plan for the people of Israel that does not come 
through their incorporation into the church through faith in Christ. And there is no future blessing given to the Jewish people that is not shared by the whole church, both Jew and Gentile, who are Abraham's offspring by faith. Let me read that one more time. God has no future plan for the people of Israel that does not come through their incorporation or inclusion in the church through faith in Christ. And there is no future blessing given to the Jewish people that will not be shared by the whole church, both the believing Jew and the believing Gentile, who both are equally Abraham's offspring by faith. The church has not replaced Israel in God's covenant with Abraham. The church is the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to Abraham. The church has not replaced Israel in God's redemptive plan. The church is Israel in God's redemptive plan. That's how Paul states it in Galatians 6.16 when he refers to the church as the Israel of God. Now I'm very aware that this could be considered anti-Semitic in our hypersensitive, politically correct age. I'm also very much aware that what I just said has the peculiar ability to get people of a certain theological, eschatological stripe very rankled. Uh, in fact, I've seen members disassociate themselves from pa- churches that I have pastored because I refused to draw what I consider to be an unbiblical distinction between Israel and the church. I refused to afford to Israel a special place in God's covenant apart from the church, apart from Christ. But so far as I know my own heart, this doesn't come from any prejudicial or or racial bias against the Jewish people. I'm not sure I actually know any Jewish people. Rather, it arises, I believe, from a careful exposition of the biblical text. And furthermore, it arises out of a desire, a fervent desire not to dishonor Christ by dividing the church that he died in order to make one. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 with relation to how the church and Israel are to be understood. Paul said, for he himself, he's talking about Christ, is our peace. He's the peace between Jew and Gentile. Christ himself is our peace who has made us one and has broken down in the flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Mosaic covenant, done. That he might create in himself one new man, the church, in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. So making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So then you are no longer Gentiles, strangers, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The operative word throughout that paragraph is together. Not apart, together. Ironically then, the most anti-Semitic, unbiblical thing the church could do would be to withhold the gospel from the Jewish people. To refuse to tell them that their Messiah has come, that his name is Jesus of Nazareth, that by his blood he has mediated the promised new covenant between God and man, a new covenant that brought to an end the Mosaic covenant with its laws and regulations and has brought to fulfillment the Abrahamic covenant and that only through faith in Jesus Christ can they be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. That's anti-Semitic, to not tell them the truth. The truth that they're not children of Abraham unless they're believers in Jesus. That's what I'm zealous to maintain in Romans chapter 11. The glory and the finality of the new covenant, the unity of the church, and the necessity of faith in Jesus for both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, in verses 25 to 27 of Romans chapter 11, Paul expounds what he calls a mystery. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be the covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now for Paul, the word mystery has a technical sense. It refers to something that was once hidden in the Old Testament era, but has now been revealed through Christ and his apostles and prophets to the church. It's not something we don't know. It's something we didn't know, but we do now through Jesus. This mystery is most clearly elaborated in Ephesians chapter three, verses four to six. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In essence, Paul's been unfolding this mystery since the beginning of Romans 9. But now near the end of chapter 11, near the end of this section, he zeroes in on one specific aspect of this mystery that's been revealed to him. And it's this. Not only are the Gentiles full and equal heirs with the Jews of the Abrahamic covenant, right? That's Ephesians 2 and 3. But now he adds that God includes the Gentiles by means of Israel's exclusion. And then he uses the Gentile salvation to bring about Israel's ultimate salvation. 
That's the mystery he's talking about in Romans 11. That's the main point of 25 to 27. So let me draw your attention in these three verses to four elements of this mystery that Paul is unfolding for us. First, I want you to notice that the present hardening that is upon Israel is only partial and it is only temporary. Now, we've seen this since the beginning of Romans chapter 11. The hardening of Israel is only partial. He says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That was the point of verses 1 to 10 of Romans 11. God has not totally nor finally rejected his people because he's kept for himself in the present day an elect remnant chosen by grace, just as he did in the days of Elijah. And this elect remnant, which is exemplified in the Apostle Paul himself, obtained the righteousness of God by faith in Christ, while the rest of Israel were hardened in their unbelief. Thus, throughout the entire present age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the elect remnant of Jews that believe on Jesus as the Messiah are saved and the rest are hardened and broken off from the covenant people of God. During this present age, there are two types of Jewish people, according to Paul in verses 1 and 10. There are the remnant, and there are the rest. Secondly, though, Paul says that this hardening of Israel is not only partial, there is a remnant, but it's also only temporary. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's hardening of the Jewish people has an expiration date. And that expiration date is fixed at a particular time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The plan of this age of redemptive history is strange and wonderful. God hardened Israel that the Gentiles might be saved. God saved the Gentiles that the Jews might be jealous. God makes the Jews jealous in order that they might be saved. And God saves the Jews in order that Christ might return, the dead might be raised, the end might come, and all things might be renewed. That's the first thing to note. The hardening upon Israel is only partial and it's only temporary. Secondly, This hardening will be removed when the full number of elect Gentiles are saved. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness, the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now, I don't know if we should press Paul's language too literally into an overly literal mold here as if it's only when the last Gentile to be saved is saved that the first Israelite will be unhardened. I don't, I don't think that's the way prophetic language works in the Bible. But there does seem to be a sense in which God has an, an elect Gentile people. And when that fullness has been converted to faith in Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the earth, then the final phase of redemptive history will begin to play out. The mass conversion of Israel will begin. The sovereign electing purpose of God that underlies this passage cannot and must not be softened. God has a number of Gentiles. And when they're saved... He'll remove the hardening from Israel. Third, 
Then, when the full number of the Gentiles are saved, all Israel will be saved through faith in Christ. Not apart from Christ, through Christ. And in this way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Verse 26. Now there are, I've gotten a few questions on what this means. There are three viable options, I think, to understanding that phrase, all Israel will be saved. There's a whole lot of non-viable options, and you should just disregard those. But the viable options, I think, are three. Number one, all Israel means all the elect, both Jew and Gentile, all the church that makes up the true Israel of God. Number two, all Israel means all the elect Israelites who have ever lived from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua, and David, and Paul, and Peter, and and so on to the end of the age. All Israel spans the ages. Third, all Israel means the nation of Israel, that is the Jewish people who are alive at the end when the fullness of Gentiles has come in. They will be saved. Let's walk through those three options and, and I'll show you why I land on the third. I, am have to, I do have to tell you I'm sorely tempted by the first. That all Israel refers to the whole church because that's precisely how Paul uses the term in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 15 and 16, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Being Jewish or not Jewish doesn't count for anything, Paul says. As for all who walk by this rule, namely that circumcision or non-circumcision doesn't matter, ethnic descent doesn't matter, what matters is faith in Jesus. All who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. Okay. Furthermore, if what Paul meant by all Israel will be saved is all the church, all the Israel of God, the whole olive tree, Jew and Gentile will be saved, that's true. That would be a true statement. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when the partial hardening of Israel is removed so that the fullness of the Jewish elect come in, then the whole church, the whole Israel of God, both Jew and Gentile, will have been saved. It's true. I just don't think it's what Paul means in verse 26. And here's why. Throughout Romans 9 to 11, Paul has only used the word Israel to refer to Jews as distinct from Gentiles. And in the closest possible context, namely verse 25, that's exactly what he means. Look up at verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So clearly the Gentiles, Gentile Christians, can't be included in Israel. So Israel in verse 26 cannot refer to the church. Therefore, the first option cannot be the right one. Secondly, I don't think that all Israel can refer to all of the elect within historical Israel from Abraham down to the last Jewish person to be converted at the end of the age. Why? Because again, that would make Israel in verse 26 mean something different than Israel in verse 25. Look at verse 25 again. Israel in verse 25 clearly refers to the nation or people of Israel who are presently hardened. 
by God toward Christ and the gospel. So it's talking about the Jewish people in a particular age. They're hardened, and they're the ones who will be saved at the end of the age. So he's, he's not talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and, and so on. Which leaves the third option, which I think is the best. When Paul says all Israel will be saved, he means the vast majority of the ethnic Jewish people of Israel who are alive at the end of the age, they will be converted to faith in Christ. Now, again, I wouldn't press all Israel into an overly literal mold that says that all people, all Israel without exception will be saved. I think he's speaking corporately here. The vast majority of them, the mass of them, will be converted to faith in Christ. In other words, Paul in Romans chapter 11, has held to this distinction within Israel. Okay, So if you consider the Jewish people of this age, they're divided into two groups. The remnant, verse 7, and the rest. Throughout this age, the remnant have been saved. The rest have been hardened and lost. At the end of the age, that situation is going to change, and both the remnant and the rest will be saved. The rest will be unhardened and they'll be converted. And in that way, all Israel, namely the remnant and the rest, together will be converted. How? Through faith in Christ. Now, when will this salvation take place? Verse 25 has already told us it's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul tells us again in the very next verse, verse 27, where he pulls Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 and Jeremiah 31 and kind of mashes them together into this Old Testament composite where he says that this salvation will happen when the deliverer will come from Zion. Well, that deliverer is Jesus. Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. And therefore, the timing of the Jewish conversion is the return of Christ. It's at the return of Christ that all Israel will be saved. It is then that the deliverer will banish ungodliness from Jacob, will take away their sins, and will bring them into the everlasting covenant. Now let me point one further thing out just to to hammer in the nail one last time. How will Israel be saved? Only through faith in Jesus. How do we know that? Because look at verses 25 and 26. Israel is only saved when their hardening towards Christ is removed. When they are unhardened towards Jesus, then and only then will they be saved. Then, as always, God will have only one covenant people at the end of the age Because Jesus has only one blood-bought bride. Jesus isn't a polygamist. He doesn't have two brides, Israel and the church. He has one. Israel will be saved through faith in Christ and incorporation into that one bride. Fourth element to note. The effect of this mystery is the destruction of Gentile pride. Paul begins this by saying, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. So knowledge of this mystery destroys 
the kind of anti-Semitic Gentile pride which has plagued the church throughout the centuries. That kind of pride which is tempted to say, God's finished with Israel, they had their chance, they squandered it, so God's rejected them, and we're it now. And this long history of Jewish persecution is just the Jews getting what they deserve. That's been the attitude of the Gentile church for ages. And Paul says, no. I won't have any of that. I think what he gives in this passage are two antidotes to that kind of Gentile conceit. First, the Gentiles' inclusion in the covenant people owes nothing to their, our own worthiness. Why? Because we Gentiles would have rejected Christ just like the Jews did had it not been for the sovereign grace of God. The sovereignty of God's grace is all over this passage, permeates every verse. It was God who hardened Israel, verse 7. It was God who brought the Gentiles in, and it is God who will save Israel by banishing ungodliness from Jacob. Sovereign grace is the great destroyer of human pride. The second antidote is actually implied throughout this passage, but it's explicitly stated in verse 28. Look down there. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The fact of the matter is God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He loved them. And because he loved them, he loved their families too. And in everything I've said thus far about how there's no distinction between a believing Jew and a believing Gentile, Don't hear me say that there's nothing special about the Jewish people. There is. God chose their fathers, not ours. God loved their fathers, not ours. And because of that, he extended this special, redemptive, elective plan to save the great mass of Abraham's biological children at the end of the age. Why? Because he loved Abraham. No other people, no other ethnic group on the face of the earth has the kind of promise that Israel has in verse 26. No other people on earth have the privilege of being the first and the last to be saved, of both inaugurating and consummating the kingdom of Christ. Does God save No, does God savingly love, let me put it that way, does God savingly love an unbelieving Jew? No. Such a person, an unbelieving Jewish person, is not a child of Abraham. According to Jesus in John 8, he's a child of the devil, just like unbelieving Gentiles. But does God possess a special love for the corporate ethnic people of Israel and have a plan for their ultimate conversion? Yes. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. You can't say that about Canaanites. Canaanites are not beloved for the sake of the fathers. You can't say that about Anglo-Saxons. They're not beloved for the sake of the fathers, but Hebrews are. So on the one hand, Gentile, which I'm assuming is probably all of you, you should not feel slighted that you are not a Jew. For the reason that you will inherit everything that a believing Jew inherits through faith in Christ. 
you are no second-class citizen of the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, believing Gentile, you must not be proud or arrogant toward the Jews because God has saved you by bringing you into their family rather than the other way around. In other words, God does not save the Jews by making them Gentile. God saves the Gentiles by making them Jews. Verses 28 to 32 then contains a summary of the mystery that has been expounded in 25 to 27. And really, it's a summary of the whole of Romans 11. Again, I want to break this down in three main points. First, in verses 28 to 29, Paul summarizes the present state of Israel in relation to God. Okay? He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Which is kind of paradoxic, right? God is at one and the same time both for and against Israel. They are both enemies and beloved for the sake of Abraham. The first half of verse 28 affirms the reality that in relation to the gospel of Christ, Israel is the enemy of God. They are, Romans 9.3, accursed and cut off from Christ. Romans 11.15, they are rejected. 11.17, they are broken off from the people of God. For the sake of believing Gentiles, which is saying nothing more than What Paul's already affirmed over and over again in Romans 11, that Israel's rejection is the divinely ordained means of bringing in the Gentiles to salvation. So let me be clear. At present, Israel is at enmity with God, and God is at enmity with them. That's the first half of verse 28. They are not, at present, in God's grace or under God's blessing their enemies now surely you can see that has some implications for some of the questions we've been asking throughout our study of romans 11 concerning the present state of israel and its divine right to uh, the promised land i'd simply remind you that god is not in the habit of giving his land to his enemies while those enemies remain enemies in other words faithless and disobedient now The relationship between God, Israel, Palestine, and that land is a complex issue. And I'm not going to presume to offer answers. But I I will presume, if you'll permit me, to offer five what I believe to be biblical principles to help us think through this matter theologically. And there is no more volatile issue on the world stage than the relationship between Israel, Palestine, and that narrow strip of geography on the western Mediterranean. So let me give you five biblical principles to help us think through what's going on over there. Number one. God promised the land as an everlasting inheritance to Abraham and to his offspring. Okay, Clear enough, pretty much every Christian and Jew believes that. Number two, the heirs of that promise are the believing spiritual offspring of Abraham, not the unbelieving physical offspring of Abraham. Well, that's where the church and the Jewish people part ways. 
Number three, the church who are comprised of all Jews and Gentiles who are united to Christ by faith, Christ, who I'll remind you, is the one true seed of Abraham and the one true heir of the Abrahamic promise, Galatians 3. All Jews and Gentiles that are united to Christ by faith are the true spiritual descendants of Abraham and are therefore the legitimate heirs, the only legitimate heirs of the promises to Abraham, including the promise of the land. Number four, the state of Israel, talking about the Jewish state, came into existence in 1948, which at present remains faithless and disobedient in rejecting God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, less than two-tenths of one percent of the Israelite population are Christians, the Jewish Israelite population. The state of Israel, which at present remains faithless and disobedient in rejecting God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, are not the true descendants of Abraham and therefore may not at present lay claim to the covenant promises, including the promise of the land. Number five, the inheritance of the land will be bestowed upon the heirs, the true children of Abraham, in other words, the church, at the return of Christ and not before. In other words, you can't go to Israel now and claim divine right to that land. And this inheritance will find its true fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, the implications of those five principles are startling. Uh, and we could spend a lot of time unpacking them, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to give you three of the most explosive why, you might ask? Well, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. I kind of like debate. I also think it's good for us to know. So implication number one. I don't believe that any nation, Christian, Jewish, Arab, or otherwise, can lay claim to the promised land by divine right during this present new covenant age. This means that the Crusades of the Middle Ages in which the church tried to recover the holy land from the infidel Turks. They were foolish and they lacked divine sanction. Now, most Christians I know can get on board with that statement. They'll agree, crusades, bad idea. But it also means that the present state of Israel cannot lay claim to that land by divine right either. Far fewer Christians I know are in agreement with me on that one. Second implication it means that a Palestinian Christian, and there are many of them, has more claim to Jerusalem than an unbelieving Israeli. Although that claim may not be made until the second coming of Christ on the last day. For that matter, you and I have more claim to Jerusalem than an unbelieving Israeli. But that claim may not be made until the return of Christ on the last day. Third, Therefore, during this present age, no nation should make foreign policy decisions regarding Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East on the basis of claims to divine right. Rather, we should seek a peaceful and just solution to the present two-state problem. Now, I hasten to add that that solution is unbelievably complex because the we-were-here-first argument doesn't work. It doesn't solve anything. I would also hasten to add, and do not wish to be misunderstood, 
that no one here should take my words to mean that acts of terror committed by Palestinians should be tolerated. They shouldn't. Nor that Israel does not have the right to defend itself from such terrorism. They do. And I continue to think that the United States should be the closest of allies to the state of Israel. I just do not think that that support should be naive or unqualified or based upon unbiblical claims to divine right or divine blessing rooted in Genesis chapter 12. At present, the state of Israel is not under the blessing of God. They are his enemies. But that's not the whole of the story, is it? Not the end of verse 28. They are his enemies, but, Paul goes on to say, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. And this, I think, necessarily balances out the way the church should think about Israel. The fact of the matter is that Israel, the Jewish people, not the present geopolitical state, Israel is unlike any other ethnic nation on the face of the earth. They have something that no other nation has, namely, they were chosen. As a nation by God, they were called out from among all the other nations in order to play a special role in the redemptive plan and purposes of God. They are the people whom God chose and called out and and upon whom he bestowed innumerable gifts, gifts and calling, which are irrevocable. They are the one nation that God chose and called out through whom he would bring the Messiah and the messianic salvation to all the nations. That's not true of any other nation on the face of the earth. Now, election in verse 28 is not the individual election to salvation that Paul was describing in Romans 9 when God was making a distinction between this Israelite and that Israelite, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. Rather, this election of the ethnic people of Israel is an election to a unique role in redemptive history. They are the people whom God chose through whom he would bring the Messiah and the messianic salvation. And they are the people whom God elected to consummate this messianic salvation in the kingdom of Christ on the last day. It's for this reason that they remain, even in their present state as the enemies of God, they remain beloved for the sake of the fathers. And therefore, they should remain, even in their unbelieving state, esteemed and honored by the church. Why? Because we love Abraham too, don't we? He's our father. They are the natural branches. To them belong the gifts and the calling. All those benefits mentioned by Paul at the beginning of Romans 9. And those gifts and calling cannot and will not be revoked. And that's precisely why God will one day remove his hardening hand from Israel and graft them back into the olive tree of his covenant people. We should not make the mistake of pretending that they are already grafted back in, nor of pretending that they don't still need to be grafted back in. They were and they remain broken off, but neither should we ignore the fact that they will one day be grafted back in. Why? Because they are the elect nation and have been so since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because God loves them. 
And because therefore, so should we. Now, verses 30 to 31 are a summary and restatement of the point Paul has already made in verses 11 and 12 and 15 and 17 to 24. Namely, that this age of redemptive history is going to play out in this kind of pendulum swing. Israel's rejection leading to Gentile salvation. Gentile salvation leading back to Israelite inclusion. For just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. This strange and sovereign plan for redemptive history is how God's elective love toward Israel is going to be made manifest. How does he love them? He loves them by saving them at the end. Finally, Paul draws from this strange and sovereign plan a general concluding principle in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God works in the present age Remember, hardening Israel to save the Gentiles, saving the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, making Israel jealous in order to save Israel. The way he's working in this present age is consistent with the way God has worked throughout redemptive history. This verse is breathtaking. And it gives us a glimpse into the eternal counsels of God. I take Paul to mean that God has consigned, your Bible may have imprisoned, that's okay, it's a good translation, all humanity in disobedience in order to demonstrate his mercy on all. The disobedience was necessary to the mercy. He couldn't show mercy unless he consigned to disobedience. That's what I think Paul is saying. And I think this verse provides insight into that age-old question of why God ordained the fall. Why, God, did you plant a tree in the middle of the garden? Why did you ordain the fall of Adam and Eve? And don't be afraid of that active verb. God ordained it. Why? Why all of this misery flowing out from your, your ordination to permit the fall? Why? So that he might demonstrate His mercy. No sin and disobedience, no mercy demonstrated, no glory to God for that mercy. That's what Paul's saying. The answer to the question of why God permitted the fall is not, as I heard in a sermon recently, because God simply wanted to be loved and love depends upon free choice as if love can't exist apart from its potential opposite, namely hate. That's absurd. Don't think like that. If love depended upon the potential choice to not love, if temptation The temptation of man to sin by not loving God was essential to man's ability to really love God, then love could neither exist in eternity past among the three members of the Trinity, or it would not exist in eternity future among all of the redeemed. Because neither in eternity past among the Trinity, nor in eternity future among the redeemed, will there be the potential to not love God. 
And yet Christ always loved the Father, and he was never tempted to not love the Father. The saints will love the Father forever, and there will be no potentiality for sin or disobedience. No, this idea that God had to give us some free choice in order that we might love him, that's not biblical. That's not why God did it. God allowed the fall in order that there would be sin, in order that there could be mercy, in order that there would be glory. That's verse 32. If that were not so, if verse 32 were not so, that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, then it could not be said at the end of this chapter, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belongs the glory forever and ever, which is the ultimate God-centered aim of all creation and history. So let me close this morning by asking you where you fit in. You heard Gordon ask that at the beginning of this service, and that wasn't by accident. Where do you fit into this breathtaking scope of redemptive history that begins in eternity past and, and, and runs to eternity future? I know one thing, even if I don't know anything else about you, I know one thing is true of you. You're in the first half of verse 32. You've been consigned, along with the rest of humanity, to disobedience. You were born into this world with a nature inherited from your fathers that is bent towards sin and evil and rebellion against God. Every breath you have ever taken, every movement of your little finger has been directed towards something other than the glory of God, namely self-glory and self-gratification. I know that's true of you, even if I don't know anything else that's true of you. What I'm more interested in this morning is whether you're found in the second half of verse 32. Whether you're one of the recipients of God's saving mercy. How might you know? Because this passage has made at least one thing abundantly clear. That there is no ethnic nor moral qualification for receiving the mercy of God. The only qualification is that you've been consigned to disobedience, and you have. Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, Pharisee or pagan, Sunday school teacher or prostitute. Such things neither qualify nor disqualify you from an inheritance among the people of God. For that inheritance is rooted only in grace, apart from works, and in the mercy of God, which overcomes all disobedience. So call upon the name of Christ today in faith. Receive the saving mercy of God, and you unbelievable as it may sound, will be grafted into the Israel of God, you will receive all of the promises of Abraham, and God will say to you today and every day hereafter for endless ages, you are my people, and I am your God.